The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ivarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. So, you have a great idea for a personal project. It's a subject matter or an idea that you are really passionate about, and you know deep in your gut that you are meant to make it happen. But where do you start? How do you gain access? How can you manage to make the time to dedicate to a project when you are faced with trying to earn a living? What do you do with all those images once you're done? Well, all these questions have been asked by today's guests, Seth Joel and Charlie Holland, a husband and wife team that we interviewed way back in episode 68. They have been working on a personal project called Ranch Raised Kids, where they document the lives of children who are being raised in the world of ranching in Arizona. It's a unique take on the world of the modern cowboy and cowgirl, which leads us to rethink what we think we know about that world. It's also an opportunity to look into how a working professional produces a personal project. I've been really excited about the, the project since you first turned me on to it. The images are just just amazing. Thank you. Uh, they're really, really beautiful. I, I, I love seeing the stuff that you guys have produced. Uh, but I thought it would be a good opportunity to sort of share it uh, share the whole process because I always talk yeah. to a lot of people who are doing personal projects, and you know, oftentimes uh, the conversations that arise from that are always one of the more interesting ones because it's not just about people making interesting individual photographs; it's about having a passion about something, yeah. creating a series of images, and yeah. undoubtedly having a lot of obstacles in terms of the idea yeah. to fruition. Yeah. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to to revisit you guys yeah. and to Thank talk you. about the uh, about the project. So why don't, why, don't, why don't you tell us about how it all got started? What was the germ of the idea? It started when we were shooting stock in Arizona um, and we were introduced to a cowboy, very good-looking cowboy with blue eyes with three totally what we used to call cowboy cute kids. And we were allowed to, we shot them in a, um, the Skull Valley Cafe, which is a good title for any cafe. And it it really enjoyed the experience. But we met them completely by chance in Arizona about seven years later. And they had gone from these, what I call cowboy cute to, uh, one of them was uh, roping and dragging calves to the fire at a branding, and the other two were helping with the medicines. So they were suddenly working cowboy. And it was a transformation that really took us by surprise mm-hmm. that within those seven years, they, they had grown up so much. And then they had invited us to um, the rodeo that they went to every year, which was called the Cow Punchers Reunion Rodeo in Arizona. And we'd said we were going to go for years, and we finally went. 
the the following year, and that's when the idea really grabbed us because we realized that these three kids that we knew were not alone. Right. That th- every kid we met was talented, good with horses, good ropers. They knew they had cowboying skills, and they had the most impeccable manners. They were extremely well brought up, is the the way you would your mother would have described them. <laughs> and, it was yes, ma'am, yeah, and yes, sir. And they also uh, we started talking to some of the other parents there, and we realized that they were being brought up on ranches that were um, twenty to two hundred square miles in in size. Therefore, they're being homeschooled. So it was it was the the fact that these vast, vast ranches still existed, were still being worked, the kids were still being trained to work them, they were being homeschooled, um, that m- made us wonder when we were driving home from the rodeo, we just said, well, what, what is it about being raised on a ranch that makes these kids so interesting mm-hmm. and so accomplished. So we we knocked around, wow, what's about ranch-raised kids? And then we talked and talked and we were able to put the ideas into enough shape to apply for a, a grant from uh, Art Center. Also, you guys applied for the grant even before yes. you really actively started shooting. Yes. yes, because what it did was I was working at the Autry at the time. So writing the grant proposal, I had the head of the library as my editor. So she was very, if she was interested after all she knew and read about ranching and, and the West, then I knew that that we could be, we were onto something right. interesting. So yes, we, but we knew because of the amount of people we knew and the good feelings that we had about the community, we seemed to get along with the community that we knew now, we knew we could pull it off, but we needed to articulate the idea. And I think that's something about a personal project. You almost need to articulate the idea from the beginning. No one's going to give you any money Hmm. unless you can articulate what you're doing there. Yes, so we got the grant. We were given the grant in November, and we didn't go back out into the field until March because we were preparing really, really carefully with... we prepared a five by seven glossy cards to hand out mm. and we were going to an event in March and and just two weeks before we went there we sent a letter to it was the Arizona Cattle Growers Association we joined the Cattle Growers Association which I never thought I'd have a a, a, a card, card saying I was a member of the Arizona <laughs> Cattle Growers Association. Um, and we went to their weekend um, auction. And before we went, we notified the secretary of what we were going to be doing there because we didn't want to show up there as random strangers. We knew right. any time we identified as ourselves as random or entitled, that we, it was a mark against us. So we let the secretary of the association know who we were and what we were doing. And on our way to drive there, we got a call from her saying, I think this is a fantastic project and I want to put it on the cover of our magazine. We knew then that, um, that our six, she had just given us a sort of good housekeeping seal of approval. So at the, we introduced ourselves to everyone we possibly could, everyone who would look me in the eye 
at that Cattle Growers Association meeting and um, auction. And then the cover of the uh, Cattle Growers magazine came out. And then we, it was time for the reunion rodeo again, where we could walk around with that magazine, say, oh, did you see us in the Cattle Growers? And suddenly we existed outside of just our big, strange people with cameras around our neck. I was going to go back a little bit. Okay. Working on a personal project like this, there is no timeline to it. There's a beginning, but the opportunity to communicate with, with the ranch people could not be done by cell phone. It could not be done by email. It only could be done by actually going and meeting them face-to-face, as we call kind of boots on the ground. Yeah. That's what we did at this cattle auction. So we arrived at like 6 a.m. with all the other ranchers who were sort of showing off their horses and getting ready for the auction. And we just randomly introduced ourselves um, they had no idea who we were, and we'd explain briefly about our project, and we'd show them a few picture cards and some um, examples of what we thought we might want to do with them. We spent hours just pressing the flesh, saying hello, explaining who we were. And looking at horses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which you have affinity for. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the common interest, really, is having an interest in horses. Because the cattle wasn't our world, Mm -hmm. but the horses were. And then we began to realize that we had a real connection with the land. And the land is what ranchers are really all about, being stewards of the land and looking after the water holes and looking after the pastures. And um, the cattle is a commodity. That's their living. Right. Well, I, I want to go back even further than that because mm-hmm. I'm because I'm, I think uh, when I think of some people going out and doing a personal project, they f- get an idea and they go out and actively shoot it, and mm-hmm. they're really not thinking about what the overall theme or the idea. They go, "Oh, this would be interesting to photograph," and mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. sort of the in the process of shooting and later editing, they kind of figure out what this project is about. And it mm-hmm. seems that you guys had an opportunity to sort of figure that out in applying for the grant. And I'm really curious because you guys are working together. Could you talk a little bit about sort of hashing and refining what that idea was, not only for, for the grant, but how that helped you when you when it was time to meet these people and explain what you were doing? Yeah. Well, I'd say a couple of things. The What was in the grant had a more of an emphasis on the sort of photographic history of the cowboy because this was a grant to be provided by Art Center. Mm-hmm. So um, we, one of the things that we, that was emphasized in the, the grant application was that still photographers had done the cowboy culture a disservice by idealizing, romanticizing, and de facto trivializing the cowboy culture. And that we wanted to go in there and shoot in color with pictures that reflected the here and now, that the, the, the Jay Dussard's book was called The Vanishing Breed, and it was done in 1982. Wow. 
and wow, we were there and they hadn't vanished. That that was a for me that was a big articulating all that was a big part of the grant process. There was also I knew that the same thing was being done now. There's a, a couple of photographers, one in Colorado, one in Arizona, that are doing the same thing. It's black and white. It's timeless photography. It, well, that's what timeless in inverted commas. They intentionally leave out any any reference to anything modern day. Blah blah blah. And have published books which just have these pictures, sometimes view camera pictures, without even any captions. And the community kind of resent that because they are not there just, it's not, I think the way we put it before is that we didn't want to be the shoot and run photographers. Right. So then we don't need to tell the community that that's what, that we're addressing what we think is an imbalance in how their culture is communicated by photographers but I but what we told them was that we felt that we were so impressed by the strength of their culture that we felt that by showing the kids and by showing their skill and by showing how quickly they learned those skills we could we were making a statement about not only how well they were bringing up their kids, how well they were educating their kids, but also that the cattle industry wasn't dead. Mm-hmm. So in terms of explaining it to the, um, the ranchers, it was that this culture is alive and well, um, and it will continue. And you're, br- you're bringing up kids who are going to carry this forward. So how, how did that inform the kinds of images that you made? Because you didn't necessarily want to, you know sort of repeat some of the mistakes that had been made in the past, but you still wanted to make images that were really visually appealing, but that explored maybe some facets of these people's lives, especially these young kids that wasn't really being visited. Yes, I I found that that each picture built on the picture before it. So it was like a, a big story that we were beginning to tell about the the uh, importance of family in the ranching community. So I, I really found that the, the kids were um, accustomed to being around grown-ups. They always worked with their fathers. They worked with cowboys. Uh, they respected um, technique and standards in whatever jobs they were doing. So when we'd, we'd be introduced, they realized that we were coming from a long distance and that they were taking them, themselves quite seriously because this was about them. I was lucky that they would, they would immediately give me as much time as I wanted and as much opportunity to allow them to tell their story while I was shooting. So they'd really own that particular photo shoot. So they'd take me into their rooms, or they'd take me to where they saddle up, or they'd take me to where they're raising their 4-H animals. And they'd, they'd share with me what their passion was on the ranch, and the the um, opportunity to photograph them was uh, um, um, 
just very comfortable, very relaxed. So it wasn't the the fact that they were so differential to adults, typically in their in their interactions, wasn't an obstacle. Wasn't an obstacle at all. Did that surprise you? Yeah, it it did because I've photographed children before, and they have very short attention spans. And they tend to be gimmicky and throw at you what they've seen on television or what the pop culture is dictating at the at the time. No duck lips, please. No duck lips. No, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and we never had any kids photobombing yeah. the other kids either. Yeah. They were very respectful of the relationship between Seth and the child that was working and they didn't try and mess it up. Very... Very interesting. So was this um, a relatively small community that you were photographing? Did, did did everyone sort of know each other? Or did you sort of have to sort of prime the pump when you went to different events or different areas? Well, you know, in the beginning, we didn't lift a camera up for six months. Six months? Yeah, we were oh, just wow. going out. Well, from the ground to meeting, our first family visit was six months. Meeting people and talking about our project. It was a real commitment on our part uh, to network and to gain some trust and some some sort of street cred. Mm-hmm. And there was one rancher in particular. Her name is Wendy Kimball. And Wendy rang us up on the way back from one of the cattle auctions, and she said she liked our project and she'd like to help us. So through Wendy, she made some introductions, and we followed through, and we started shooting. And then after those experiences, we'd get uh, passed around. So, you know, always someone would say, well, you should talk to the Westlakes, or you should talk to the Mm -hmm. Rogers. So um, we, we managed to get cell phone numbers. And texting seems to be the most efficient way to communicate. And um, just one thing has kind of led to the next. Wow. I'd like to go back to the photography um, bit that you asked, Seth, how the photography works. The... um, I, sh- I, I, I should have known better. I thought that um, being a, having been a photo editor, I, before we started shooting the project, I said, we should go out and do some testing. How do we want this to look? Do we want these to be posed portraits? Do we want to have a light? Do we want to add a ring flash? Do we want to do this or that? And um, we went out to uh, somewhere locally and we had the ring flash and we had the pop-up and the wind came up. And we that and there was uh, dust everywhere. Yeah, and the pop up was blowing down, and we we shot, but it was like the best test we could have done because we didn't make that mistake. But I also realized I'd made a mistake even suggesting it because there's one thing that as a photo editor, I always used to tell photographers that a, a good photo editor hires a photographer to take the picture they can't help but take. Hmm. And what we didn't realize going into Ranch Raised was, of course, that was going to apply to Seth. We were going to be mm-hmm. in very difficult situations. They're quite, these situations are quite difficult um, socially because we're coming into the family. There's a lot of 
talking going on. Yeah. We're going some, to their homes. Some mothers are, are a little bit worried if they're talking to me in the kitchen and Seth's gone into the kid's bedroom because she wants to show him something. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's a great deal of there is no way we could have and I, I think some of the other photographers before have made taken the life out of the projects by using a view camera by doing tintypes by doing something where the photographic technique takes over the interaction okay. and I think Seth's very natural way of going and very natural way of shooting has enabled the is what enables the interaction between the child and Seth to to continue the photography does not get in the way can, can you give me an example of one of these shoots with one of these kids that really sort of epitomizes that that whole concept where you felt like this is how I want to approach uh, the project I would I would say one of the most unique experiences I've had on the ranch so far is uh, photographing a young man named Talon. Talon was injured in a horse wreck when he was five years old. Um, The doctors told him he'd never walk or speak again. And his mother was determined uh, to make sure that that she'd prove them wrong. So lo and behold, Years later, because Talon's now 12, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's with the help of, of some aids, some physical aids, like special straps and, and other things. He can get up in the saddle and he can, um, work at certain chores around the ranch. So we set up a photo session at the ranch to meet Talon and I was, expecting it to last maybe 10, 15 minutes before Talon would exhaust himself. And um, that would be the end of it. What Whatever I get, I get. Well, Talon um, and I just really connected. And I started to um, um, just ask him simple questions. I I asked the mother to give me some examples of sign language so I could communicate with him. And after an hour and a half of shooting, from the barns to the horses to the round pen to the to the um, ATV, this young man um, exhausted me. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your point is really that the reactive approach. Yes. Your flexibility was what it made it possible to work with Talon. Setting yes. up lights and telling, asking Talon to stay somewhere was not going to give you a picture that that, yes, that right. showed where he was where he was at. He did that, and Seth followed him around and and, and got the picture. Yeah, that was that was a, a situation where I had no idea going in how long it was going to last and how Talon would react to me. There's been other experiences where I've been on the range with the um, with Shayla, who's, what, nine years old? Sh- Shayla Rogers. And um, we just really connected. And she, um, after asking her questions about what she likes to do on the range, what, what, what is her horse like, what does her father teach her, she just gives it up. I mean, she just owns the photo shoot because we'll spend 
two and a half hours photographing. So it's, it's just really an organic process. No matter where we go, it, it seems like the kids are really, they really want to be a part of this project. How simply were you working? Because, I mean, we talked about you weren't farming yeah. all production. Yeah. But yeah. I usually don't talk about equipment, but this, I'm really curious yeah. about how, how did you sort of pare things down when you were, at, were you shooting? Um, well, I really like an image to be as honest as possible. I, so I pared down my, my kit to just a 35-millimeter, 1.4 prime lens, which I tend to shoot... Uh, pretty much at the one four to two eight, which is one of the beautiful things, by the way, of those images. How you use the depth of field. I mean, I just marvel at, at the beauty of it. So, thank you, thank you. It's that it's using that lens that allows me to to emphasize the areas of the picture that really mean the most to me, and lighting wise, as natural as possible. Um, these are natural environments, <laughs> so it's a lot of daylight. And um, if I use a flash, it's just for a gentle fill to get underneath a cowboy hat. And that is usually adjusted about two stops below the, the ambient mm. exposure. So that's how simple. I'm working as if I was a journalist in 1965 with a handheld like a and triax film huh. and getting close um, that demands in, uh, that you're physically very yeah, very um, in always the in close which allows me to communicate with them and that and, creates a bond and almost get killed occasionally uh, there are times <laughs> well you gotta tell me about that <laughs> no, you're, you're I'll, I'll, at roundups i'll and, tell this story because uh he was the one who had the camera fixed to his eyes he um there was a, a roundup uh, and so there was a pen and the branding was going on and there's a big branding fire and um, someone was on a wild horse, uh, a horse that went wild and Seth was photographing and the they dragged very close to Seth and then the horse started rearing up and the only thing that rider could do because Seth was six feet one side, he had to bash the horse into the fence to make sure the horse took its head away um, from Seth, which, um, and Seth was watching through his lens and took the picture and then suddenly realized that the horse was coming down and um, backed off and, of course, fell down. <laughs> yeah, in the process, uh, you know, yeah, within inches of the uh, big uh, fire right. that uh, they used to warm the branding wow. iron. Yeah, so it was... It was pretty hairy, but the guy was really in control of uh, the horse, and everyone just laughed at Seth. They thought it was hysterical. He ended up on his back in the dirt. Well, and the ranchers, they said to me, well, we, th we have to look after you, not the four-year-old <laughs> child that you're photographing. Yeah, you know? I got the same thing, not to that extent, but uh, when I was photographing at the Santa Anita racetrack, oh. I was focusing, and I was getting closer and closer, yeah. and they were like, Back up, yeah. <laughs> because the horse could kick me at any time, and I was completely, yeah, completely oblivious. Yeah, uh, you, you talk about how big these ranches are, mm -hmm. but I think most of us just lack any sort of context mm -hmm. yeah. in terms of how big these places are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell us how you experienced that and how you tried to convey that some essence of that in some of the photographs. Well, it's it's a wow factor of 
you know, 10. When you drive up a 20-mile dirt track to get to the camp where the rancher is living, which is also the house, um, the wow factor is just incredible. It's like an ocean of rangeland. But it's so big, it is difficult to capture in a frame because yeah. of the, the notion it's not necessarily a picture we have wanted to take, which is the, the child lost in the landscape. Mm-hmm. I suspect there's a couple of pictures that were taken on the CV ranch where it was very beautiful weather, and we did. There were a couple of long shots, but the because the book we primarily designed it in our heads as the kids speaking then and we've uh, limited ourselves sort of to one picture of the kid just just as some sort of construction then very far views are quite difficult to incorporate yeah um so there's only been um a few pictures of very of the vast what's it and it's it's difficult to sum that up because it's it's almost unbelievable when you're um this is, this is how they give directions. They go, um, go up the road, and this is a two-lane highway, and then after the power lines, um, uh, take a left there, and then after the third cattle grid, you'll go over the railroad tracks, and then wait till you come to the W, to the V, and then take the right. Just make sure you get the right. And that's all the directions you get for 18 miles of dirt road. Oh, wow. We always say when we were given those directions, we felt that we'd really arrived because we were being treated like a kid would be treated. A kid would be given those directions sort of like that and expected to find their way. And so when we're given directions like that, we just go, "Uh uh-huh, fine. (laughs) And But that's 18 miles off the road. And that's that's, that's how... um, how intense it is. And sometimes we'll stop and take pictures for ourselves, but it's, I don't know how we'll be able to incorporate that vastness into a book that's focused on the kids. But there's a good question. There are a few elements that help to share to the viewer the vastness of these ranches. Some of it has to do with the great big skies. Yeah. On the Lazy Bee Ranch, which was Sandra Day O'Connor's birthplace and where she grew up. Um, and it's right on the border of New Mexico and Arizona. This, the skies are just the biggest skies I've ever seen in my life. The cloud formations are painterly. It's phenomenal. And in a p- photograph, it really captures that. The wind in a child's hair yeah. across their face, um, the way they dress, the, the dirt um, around mm-hmm. their their eyes because the dust is always blowing. Uh, those are the things that really kind of capture, to me, what the landscape, the rough, rugged landscape is really like. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the big things about the, sort of the changing face of sort of the American West mm-hmm. is the commercialization of, you know, food. And mm-hmm. I think part of the impression is that these family home, family-owned farms and ranches are quickly sort of disappearing and so on and so forth. And I'm wondering what you've gotten in sense of the kids' perceptions of the sort of legacy they're inheriting, considering the industrialization of ranching and, and beef and all that holds for, for their future. Do you, do you get a sense of I get of a sense of the determination. They uh, are determined 
uh, to be very much like their parents. Um, their parents are their main role models. And um, the parents are determined to succeed in a really changing environment now in terms of the way cattle are auctioned off and the way the, the rangeland is regulated and leased out. These kids are learning everything there is to know about ranchers and ranching by their parents. And that's one of the things that I really identified with when I got involved with this project, which was that I was mentored by my father, who taught me about photography, and he taught me technique, and he taught me the way to examine pictures and to read pictures. And the passion that he had, I inherited it. And I'm watching the kids, the ranch kids, experience the same thing I did as a child. They're being mentored by their parents, their their techniques. They learn how to uh, read the, take care of the, the rangeland, the ranch land. Uh, they're even taught how to, to read the color of the manure from the cattle to see how the feed is operating on their their systems. It's like darkroom work for me. Yeah. It's a similar thing where you, it's time and temperature and then improvisation. But it's your final eye, it's the judgment call you make, which is the difference between a, a good print and a, and a great print. And this one, I, uh, I have a slightly different, if you don't... No, go ahead. A slightly different uh, take on it because I think something you just said is kind of one of the misconceptions the um a lot of these ranches the babbitt ranches is 700,000 acres and it's been owned by a corporation since 1890 so there uh there is a lot of corporate farming a lot of the families that this i made the same assumption that the families that we would meet would be the owners of the land they're not ah they're Sometimes we, at the, on the Lazy Bee, that's owned by a corporation based in Los Angeles now, but we, we photographed the cow boss and his kids, the cow boss being a very specific role. And the, um, uh, on the other ranches, yes, they've been the, sometimes the ranch manager, the ranch manager for that ranch and another ranch because the company owns 14 ranches. Three in Colorado, nine in um, Arizona, two in New Mexico. So it's very the it's an industry. It's this is not the family family farm. Okay, you know there. Yes, there are some. Some of them are owned by very rich families, and there will be no problem in the succession. Others. Um, the the tightest family that we know who own the most amount of land and they own about 132,000 acres they have six boys they are not going to die until each one of those boys has his own ranch so and i swear if john says that john will not die mm-hmm. until each one he will be hanging on with his last <laughs> breath while the last piece of paper is signed and those boys want nothing they all work together and they want nothing other than to continue this because they know by working together they can all have their own place oh thank you for that because i had no idea yeah it's very that. it's very interesting it was a real eye-opener for me so we're in the ranch raised kids is kids that are being raised in a culture not kids that are being raised on family owned Branches. Okay. And also the the 
the difference is also that someone might own 22 acres but lease 100,000 acres of BLM land or they're, they're, some own a huge amount of land and, and, but most own a smaller amount of land and have leases on state and national, um, uh, national land and that's what compromises the ranch. Did that complicate in terms of what you were able to do no, on the farm? No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, th- these these um, leases are really uh, just a, a very important part of every ranch everywhere in the country. But it, the standards, whether it was a rancher who owned or whether he was mm. managing a ranch, the standards were the same. Mm-hmm. There was this uncompromising approach to doing things um, according to the way they felt it should be done. So uh, the, 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 the water, the feed, the rangeland was carefully managed. And it didn't matter whether or not it was an owner or a, a ranch manager. Mm. It was remarkable to see that. It was also remarkable to learn about the job boards that the community has for cowboys, that during the roundup periods in the spring when they gather the cattle and they they uh, sift through and sort uh, the young calves for branding, they actually hire cowboys. And uh, cowboys from all over the country are looking at these job boards. And it's really extraordinary. So as soon as I learned how to rope... <laughs> I, I, I told Seth he was starting about 55 years too late on the learning to rope business. Do you see much in terms of ethnic diversity amongst the, the community there? No, the um, there are some. In Arizona, I would say it's mainly white, um, Caucasian, and there are uh, some... The the way that the Navajo, because our, we're limited really to Arizona experience now, the Navajo and the Apache, the way they organize their farms, it's a much more of a communal farming. It's mm-hmm. like a tribally owned. The Some Navajo run some sheep. Um, but they're not, and some, there are some, um, Navajo and Apache ranches that are now joined together to be part of the, what they call the Native American beef. And what someone, uh, actually, it's come about because, uh, someone has committed to buying their beef. Okay. In order to which they have to raise standards. So there is a very, there's a small amount. I can only locate about 10 ranches, but we, we haven't, broken into that community yet. We're close. Yeah. We have reached out to a few people that know people. Yeah. So we've got an introduction into a couple of of farms. but And then there are uh, people that still have cattle themselves of a Hispanic, um, with a Hispanic background. And there were some very, a couple of very, very prominent ranches, one of whom passed away, the Gonzales, last year and then two years ago. And so there's a very few, but mainly it's a uh, white. It's a, you know, Irish, uh, German. Um, Coming down from Wyoming, in from Texas. Okay. Uh, and we've spoken, since it's a generational thing, that's something which really was 
exciting to to discover sitting with ranchers whose whose go back uh, six generations um, just post civil war and their story of coming over from Scotland gold rush hitting his strike ranching and then family continuing the ranching it's very much not been a focus, and I've tried to to not make it a prerequisite. People mm-hmm. of our interest in a family, mm-hmm. I don't really. It it's it will be a note about the kid, but the the interesting thing to us is whether or not that kid is going to ranch, or whether that kid is planning to be a vet, or that kid is already going taking a rodeo scholarship to to a university in Texas. I think the thing that's underestimated about the ranching community is the degree to which they're educated. Because you think, oh, they grow up on the ranch, they stay on the ranch. Well, they're, they're studying range management. And we, it really came home to us when we were at the catalogs and we met an 84-year-old man who is one of the leading breeders of a certain type of cattle. And he had two MAs. He got those MAs in the mm. 40s and 50s. The King Ranch, probably the most famous ranch in Texas. King's, he made sure that his first son got a law degree. They are very, uh, they would love each one of them to have someone who had a a degree, a law degree and specialized in water rights. Each one of those families Uh, would like one of those kids, mm -hmm. you know. So you hear a lot of talk about water rights when you go down there. Yes. So how long have you been working on this project now? Um, This is our second year. We got the grant in 2015, and we started started. shooting 2016. And this year is, um, we hope to finish it this year. We plan on renting a a, a house in Wilcox, which is in southern Arizona, um, in September through January to really wrap this project up because driving back and forth from L.A. has become really tiresome. I bet. Mm. We've listened to a lot of audible books. <laughs> and the one recently we adored was Sandra Day O'Connor's book because she narrates it and uh, talks about the Lazy Bee Ranch, which we had just come from. But um, we uh, hope to finish up this year and... And then, you know, we're exploring. We've been invited to, to contribute four images to an exhibition that's being um, mounted at the Fippin Museum in Prescott, Arizona. And that opens September 3rd and will run through January 23rd. Uh, we're hoping to um, exhibit at the... Wickenburg Museum, Charlie? What is the Desert name? Caballeros yes. Museum in Wickenburg. Yes, we've talked to them about uh, a one um, family show there. The key, though, I think, is the, how, do we, how do we get this uh, project out of the community? How do we get it into... We, we approached this, you know, when, like we said we should have T-shirts made which said you're not from around here, are you? Because that's what people say to us. And someone looked me straight in the face. with your accent. Yeah. And someone looked me in the face and said, you don't need the T-shirt. So, like, okay, right. Um, And then we, but the point is that we're coming at it as civilians. And in some ways, we want to communicate everything that we didn't know. We didn't know. Every time we go out, we're humbled again because there was some other 
stupid thing we didn't realize, the mm-hmm. thing we didn't know. So we, if there is to be any writing, it's not to be a glorification of the heritage with the, the all the families, things. It's to be, again, the here and now and things that people... The civilians, as we refer to ourselves, don't know. So get it. But now our challenge and back to the personal project thing is how do we get from here? How do we get from this shooting to communicating with the civilians, the people in the community like us? We know that we've had press within the community. How do we get it the next stage? And the marketing and um, the development of the marketing is... Something, as you may know, I teach at Art Centre, <laughs> and I'm extremely humbled to say I really am finding it immensely hard um, to, I have an idea of how I would like it to go, but Seth and I both realised that in, we have to get someone to help us. Yeah. Because the, because the idea now. is just to crystallise it, is that, you know, you produce this body of work, which has, you know, a built-in audience, mm-hmm. but... The challenges in terms of being able to market it, say, as a book, yeah. any publisher is going to ask, well, who's interested in this book? Yeah. yeah. You know, and if you can't sort of convince someone that outside of this area in Arizona that there's a hunger for this, mm-hmm. it's not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's difficult. But in some ways, we, um, I, my feeling is that it's not – my personal ambition has never been to have a book in Barnes & Noble. That's not I, a lot of photographers. I want to see it in print. I want it to be a book. Mm-hmm. I really would. I would be very happy if a uh, an organization or a corporation would uh, take it on and publish it because they were proud of the work that was in it and they felt that the work that was in it right. reflected mm-hmm. their values because I think it does um, just the, the statement, the verbal statement that this is the next generation and these are these are interesting and, and astounding people. Our pictures don't, Seth doesn't photograph people in a way that they look uh, very uh, ambiguous. Seth has a very happy attitude to life. If the photograph reflects the the photographer's point of view, Seth's point of view about life is that it's going to be okay. And essentially, that's what's going to come through in the pictures. However much I, I edit in the funky ones mm-hmm. or the off moments or this and that and the other, it will always be, he's the photographer, it'll always be his vision will be reflected and it's positive enough beat and it shows the value of family and it shows the value of working the land. It shows these people are accessible. Yeah. So I would love to be sponsored for a publication by someone who needs the PR maybe, Wells Fargo, I don't know. Um, but really also as a teacher what I would say to a student who had this body of work is how can you make someone want it how does this translate into someone coming to you and saying we wanted to shoot 10 potato farmers in in Washington state and us being able and them being able to know that Seth would take naturalistic genuine moving uh, portraits of those people. So I'd like it to not only become, sp- I- I'd like to be able to use it as a ticket to generate further assignments of the okay. kind of photography. Yeah, because that's something I wanted to get in. back to because the grant that we talked about earlier may have been initial sort of seed funding 
to get things started. That's all it was. But a large part of it was coming out of your pocket. Yeah. So in terms of... Self-producing this. Yeah. So it's like you have to think about, okay, how much time do we dedicate to this? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. we still have to earn a living. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame, but we still have to earn a living. (laughs) (laughs) So talk a little bit about that, because you still have not seen sort of the end, the the culmination of this yet. But talk about, you know, practically speaking, okay, we want to go down there. We want to make these great photographs. But, you know, how do we sort of figure out what's financially viable? And possibly how do you use this work to get yourself other work that's like like this? Well, there's nothing like energy creates more energy. Mm-hmm. The amortizing a project is an organic thing. It's a talking point which becomes a real passionate uh, process that we're working on that I'll share with clients. I'll share with on my website. It becomes part of who I am and it attracts uh, it, it, it is uh, it creates a, a certain energy. How, however, I want to take it beyond the organic, mm-hmm. turn it into <laughs> <laughs> yes. the, the more carefully constructed approach. Well, and that's what we're finding really hard. We've just started speaking to someone who has been a brand development um, and a, a marketing person. She started at Nike. She's had a number of other clients she's worked with working with a couple of our artist friends and she happened to be ranch raised and she is very very keen um, and she will add a level of professionalism to the things that we knew we had to do but maybe didn't do quite right so we have a we put together a very nice website but suddenly she points out well remember the about you page shouldn't really be about you it's about what you can do for someone else what do you represent? Not where were you educated? So it's like, oh, we have a lot to learn mm-hmm. and a lot of guidance to take. But back to the the earning thing, we made a rule about a year ago, which was even if we have a trip planned to um, Arizona, if a job comes up, the trip gets cancelled. The job, the paid work always has to take priority. And and now we're at the stage where we have to throw money into our own pot to make sure that this gets finished. Because when we have a body of work of 50 kids and I have all the interviews, I have, then we can do something, mm-hmm. even if it's only to make the the second most expensive visiting card we ever made, which was the first volume. <laughs> Actually, it would be more expensive because it would be 80 pages. Even if I have to do that out of my own pocket, I will do that to make sure that the people that played with us have a finished product in their hand. I can't go back to the places we've been and said, oh, we're still trying to find a publisher or whatever. Mm-hmm. If, I, if it costs me $2,000 to get it into their hands to say thank you, I will do that. Yeah. But after that, after we fulfilled our obligation to them, someone said, this, this is the mother's book. <laughs> That's it. good. Right? Good and if we it. have to pay to produce the mother's book, then I will feel free to license the photography to someone who wants to lay it out differently, who wants to, to play with it, who wants the additional pictures, who want, whose vision is different from mine. It's very, this is laid out exactly as we wanted it laid out. Um, I would do something slightly, and I would like to see it once laid out 
even if I have to pay for that, because in my lifetime, this might be the project that I'm most proud of in 10 years. So that's what we'll do. But what Seth was saying, so we have clients, we told one of our, our wealth management clients what we were doing. Last time we were at her office, we left her a copy of the book. She rang us. She sent us an email. She said, wonderful. I'm so pleased to see it. Five days later, we get a call from another wealth management company. Oh, you were just recommended to us by. Mm-hmm. So somehow she is flattered that even though we're taking her corporate headshots for her, we exist as artists in our own right. She likes that and she'll second that. So when some she recommended us to someone else. That's awesome. So if yeah. they just need that to happen like 10 times a month, it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, this this is becomes a, a passion, a passionate project for us. We are constantly looking to grow the relationship that we have with Ranch Raised Kids to publishers, galleries, yeah. marketing people. And uh, to give you an example, we just signed a deal with RFD TV, mm-hmm. where they are airing a photo of the day. I saw that. I saw that clip. Yeah. And every day, one of our pictures uh, is up on the monitor, and the the um, announcer gives a credit to Seth and Charlie, and their. Uh, tribute to the ranch kids they've met on these big rugged ranches and that in itself is all part of the growth process for us taking it to the outside world i know seth and i've had a a sort of philosophy nothing happens unless you leave the house so and we stick by we stick by it and if we have to pay for if we have to pay for another three months of shooting i don't mind nothing will happen unless we move forward absolutely this is the kind of project that you cannot spend your time emailing people and hoping to like move it forward that way you have to go out and meet people in the old way you know just boots on the ground explain to them show them show that you're serious no matter whether you're on the ranch or you're in New York trying to sell it to an editor. That's great. Mm. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend a photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, Charlie, let me go first. Um, uh, Lucas Foglia, F-O-G-L-I-A had done two or three years ago did a book called Front Country and I have found that it is he spent between 2006 2013 he spent time in the west and he took pictures and he he did it the opposite way around to us he took pictures and he didn't know where it would end but he was struck at the um the coexistence of the mining community and the cowboy community and his book our front country starts with bucolic cowboy pictures and it gets very real and it ends with the mining. Mm. And he doesn't judge. He's not like the usual cowboy photographer. He doesn't judge whether the cowboys are better than the mines. He's just say, here is, this is. Um, so I'd recommend that. Well, 
As you can imagine, because of Ranch Raised Kids, I've really tried to grow our social media presence. So on Facebook, uh, I've reached out to not only the photo community, but the ranching community. And I've been following a photographer that I used to follow in New York during my commercial days there, a guy named Eric Miola. Oh, Eric, yeah. <laughs> and we all know him. Mm-hmm. He's been around a long time. It's great work. But he's been doing a series of the effect that the weather has on the plains in Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, and his imagery of tornadoes and strange weather patterns are just the most uh, stunning pictures I've seen in a long, long time. And he does a great written description of what he's experiencing and what he's seen on these journeys he's made. And it's clearly a personal project. It's probably something that's always interested him, the weather. And he approaches it in his amazing style of color and and graphic shape and composition. So I follow him on Facebook uh, with great pleasure. Uh, whenever he posts a picture, and it's usually once a week, if not more, it's, it's really, really fabulous. Oh, I look forward to seeing both of these people's work. Well, thank you so much, guys, for, for coming by and talking with me. Well, it's thank you, Baronex. It's a real pleasure. Thanks again for joining me, and thanks again to Seth and Charlie. You can find out more about them and their work by visiting SethJoel.com. And to find out more about this personal project, go to RanchRaisedPhoto.com. Thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes Store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover great conversations like the one you heard today. Thanks to Fargo ND for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on The Candid Frame website or the show notes. Thanks to Unframed for the recent contribution. It's really helpful. Thank you. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we present here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at ebodyunx. And this is ebodyunx. And this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>